Well, uh, Project Church, it's a pleasure as always uh, to come and open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, We're kicking off our Christmas series today called Prophet, Priest, King. At Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation of Christ, which we just sung about there. And this year, we're going to take some time looking at the offices that Christ fulfills for us, the three offices that help us understand more clearly uh, the redemptive work of Jesus, starting today with Jesus as our prophet. Uh, When it comes to the holiday of Christmas, there's been a lot of time devoted to thinking about Jesus as our king. Born is the king of Israel, uh, the famous carol declares, but Jesus is also our prophet. And as prophet, he is the one who unapologetically delivers God's words to us. So, uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 4, where Jesus announces himself as the anointed prophet of God. And I want to begin this morning by reading verses 16 through 30 in Luke chapter 4. This is what it says. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it was in 1968 that Simon and Garfunkel gave us a song by the title, The Sound of Silence. It was written by a man by the name of Paul Simon. I'm probably more of a fan of the cover by Disturbed that came out in 2015. But the purpose of the song was to highlight people's inability to communicate well with one another, on an emotional level especially. They would say that it was an inability to love each other well. And the song describes a vision that somebody had while they were sleeping, And listen to just some of the words of this famous song. It says, And in the naked light I saw 10,000 people, maybe more, people talking without speaking, people hearing without listening, people writing songs that voices never share, and no one dared disturb the sound of silence. Fools, said I, you do not know that silence like a cancer grows. Hear my words that I might teach you, Take my arms that I might reach you, but my words like silent raindrops fell and echoed in the wells of silence. 
And in our culture today, and especially at Christmas time, we have a similar problem with respect to silence. At Christmas time, we, we love to peer into the nativity scene. We, we love to see our Lord wrapped in swaddling cloth and in the presence of the barn animals and the shepherds. And we celebrate his coming by singing songs like Silent Night. But we ought to remember that Jesus did not remain silent. He, he is not a silent saviour. He came to earth because he had something to say. And the words he came to say would not always be well received. In fact, when Jesus was brought to the temple as a baby, it was Simeon in Luke chapter 2 who said these words. He said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, speaking of Mary there, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You don't hear that at too many baby dedications. But this is what was said of Jesus. You see, at Christmas time, many people love the manger, but they reject the man and the message. Jesus is our prophet. But to contemporary ears, the notion that Jesus is our prophet evokes something of a visceral reaction because under the guise of supposed humility and tolerance, the Western world is suspicious of all claims to absolute truth. The idea that Christ can simply rock up on scene and tell me the way things are and what I should do, how very barbaric. But such a suspicion towards truth has created a world of confusion and a fumbling over words. Here, for example, the words of one Harvard graduate student address that sums up just the state of confusion in the academy today. This is what she had to say. They tell us it's heresy to suggest the superiority of some value. Fantasy, to believe in moral argument. Slavery, to submit to a judgment sounder than your own. The freedom of our day is the freedom to devote yourself to any values we please on the mere condition that we do not believe them to be true. This is the confusion of our world. We'd rather leave the waters undisturbed than go splashing about on a quest for truth. No one dares disturb the sound of silence. As another author put it, we prefer tranquility above the truth. And so for us, the only words that are really left on the Western menu today are those of the the misinformed and ignorantly outspoken, which only perpetuates the confusion. And then the only other words are the unspoken words of silent conservatives, too frightened to speak up for fear of consequence. You see, the the proverbial cat has truly caught our tongue. But as we find ourselves fumbling over pronouns in this state of gospel lockjaw, every now and then we catch glimpses of something different on the lips of a bold few. We see people like Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro gather, gather really large online followings as they go head-to-head against the cultural norm, speaking with authority and just saying things as they are. We, we see something in them that kind of shocks us at first, but at the same time, it kind of whets our appetite in a way we can't describe. Without knowing it, I think deep down below the surface, we know that something is not right and we feel the bankruptcy and the confusion of our day and we long and crave for someone just to speak the plain truth to us. We want and need someone to just tell it like it is. And I'm convinced that this is a a craving that's bubbling under the surface of our culture, and it's a craving that we find on the pages of Scripture as well. You see, the Old Testament prophets, they were ministers of the Most High God, and they were commissioned by God to speak God's words to God's people. Contrary to popular belief, um, it was only a very small percentage of the time that the Old Testament prophets were foretelling of future events. Most of the time, they were foretelling. 
They were telling people to be obedient in the present with respect to things God had already said in the past. They were just rehashing things Moses had already said. And whether God's message was confronting or convicting or comforting, the prophets were just told, say it how I say it. Say it like it is. Look, for example, to the commissioning of uh, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1. This is what the Lord said to Jeremiah to start his ministry. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plan. You see, this was the function of an Old Testament prophet. Whether it was to pluck up or to plant, to break down or to build, their job was simply to say it like it is. This was God's design. Moses was the first prophet in Israel who brought God's word to God's people. And in Deuteronomy 18, Moses makes it pretty clear that there would be a long line of prophets that would follow in his footsteps. This is what he said in Deuteronomy 18. He said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This was God's design. He had always appointed people to speak his words to his covenant people. And then later in redemptive history, in Psalm 74, we read the psalmist who describes a state of disorientation in God's people when they witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. It was a destruction they deserved. God warned them many times through the prophet that this destruction was coming, but they continued to rebel. And in Psalm 74, verse 9, we hear these words of mourning and disorientation. It's fascinating what they say. It says, We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. After centuries of rejecting God's message and rejecting God's prophets, trauma strikes and they begin to crave one. They were disoriented because they weren't hearing from the prophets. And this disorientation is apparent on the pages of the New Testament as well in the form of longing. The Jews asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? We even hear it on the lips of the Samaritan woman in John 4. I know that Messiah is coming and when he comes, he will tell us all things. There is a longing on the pages of the New Testament. And so as we consider our passage today here in Luke 4, we're going to see that Jesus begins his ministry by having something to say. He steps into a long line of prophetic tradition and just says it like it is. And what he says here will become characteristic of the rest of his ministry. And though there's a sense in which his words sting a little bit, we're going to see that it's a necessary sting that will enable us to finally see the spectacular message of hope and salvation that we can come to celebrate at Christmas. That's where we're heading today. 
So we pick up our story, we're in Luke chapter 4, and we pick it up in verse 16, where we learn that on this day, Jesus entered the synagogue and that he began to read. Uh, The synagogue was a significant component in Jewish piety. Um, In the Old Testament, everything centered around the temple, uh, but having endured long periods of um, uh, time without a temple during exile, they had to adapt their religion to a more bite-sized format, and so they came up with synagogue worship. Um, You needed 10 men to make up a Jewish synagogue, and as far as we know, a typical service would involve readings from the Old Testament. You'd normally start with the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and work your way up to the to the prophets, you'd have readings from uh, other parts of rabbinic literature, and then you'd also dedicate time for prayer. If you're asking the question, where do we get our kind of model for modern-day church services, you can link it all the way back to a Jewish synagogue. And what happened on this particular day is that Jesus stood up to speak, and he selected a passage from the Old Testament prophets, which was Isaiah 61 with kind of a a side dish of Isaiah 58.6. He kind of did a little bit of a smoothie with some of the scriptures. And having read from the opening two verses of Isaiah 61, he then handed back the scroll and sat down. Now, that was standard procedure. In a Jewish synagogue, you would stand for the reading of the scripture, and then you would sit down for your sermon. Let me tell you, if we didn't have aircon, I'd be doing the same thing today. But this is how things were done in a synagogue. You would sit down to deliver the sermon. And it says there in verse 20 that the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him as he sat down. Now, Luke doesn't record it all for us. Oh, to be a fly on the wall that day, right? But we we catch a glimpse of Jesus' words and the reaction of the crowd in verses 21 and 22. He says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Now, there's a couple of things we ought to note here. Um, Firstly, the crowd marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. That, that word marveled better translates amazed. You could say they were amazed at grace. Now, I, I've got to tell you, I find that somewhat tragic. Now, let me explain what I mean. John Newton famously gave us that song, Amazing Grace, and said, how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Amen to that. May the grace of God always be incredible to us, not only in the first hour of our belief, but in every subsequent hour. Grace should always amaze us, but Jesus is in a synagogue. He's reading the scriptures in a place where the scriptures were read all the time. Now, with that in view, surely it's a sign of great tragedy that the crowd is amazed at grace. Shouldn't they already know it? Shouldn't they have already read about it with how frequently they read the old testament had they not read how god graciously clothed adam and eve despite the fact that they basically spat in his face at the fall had they not read of the gracious promises god had made to abraham or the gracious undeserving rescue of god's people out of egypt had had they not read of his gracious long-suffering patience through all of israel's history i mean the old testament is saturated with god's grace if you're reading In the synagogue all the time, surely you'd know about it. But they were amazed at it. They were hearing it for the first time. Sadly, it can happen in churches today. We can be well acquainted with the scriptures, but miss the message of God's saving grace that's saturating every single page. And we mistake it as a book about works-based righteousness. But this kind of reaction to Jesus' teaching happened all the time throughout his ministry. Look what um, it says in Matthew 7. It 
says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. He was a new kind of messenger with a new kind of message. They'd never heard anything like this before, despite the fact they were reading the scriptures all the time. But then the second thing we need to note is that Jesus says this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm sorry, what? How is it that a scripture gets fulfilled in your hearing? Think about it for a moment. How do you bring liberty to the captives simply by hearing? I mean, if that were the case, we would have jailbreaks all the time and every prison warden would be on Centrelink. You know what I mean? Like, how do you set the captives free by hearing? Furthermore, how do you recover the sight of the blind by hearing? Come on, Jesus, you're kind of mixing up your organs there. You said recover the sight of the blind, not recover the auditory faculties of the deaf. How do you how do, you do this? What are you talking about there? How can this scripture be fulfilled in their hearing? Well, let me tell you, if, if we're a bit confused, don't worry. The Jews would have been far more confused than you and I. You see, the Jews believed that when the Messiah arrived, he was going to usher in a, a revolution and bring in an age of socio-political renewal. Basically, kick out the Romans and make Israel great again. That was the T-shirt they were all wearing. But Jesus did no such thing. Even John the Baptist had a hard time figuring this out. In, in Luke chapter 7, we read that John the Baptist was in prison. And he had some questions about Jesus' ministry at that point, right? Are you the one who is to come or do we look for another? See, John the Baptist knew that Jesus had come to set the captives free, but John was being held captive in prison. And so he's trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Who exactly are you? Fair to say he wasn't vibing Jesus' ministry at this point. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what does Jesus mean when he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing? Well, to answer that question, we need to take a closer look at the scripture that Jesus actually quoted that day from Isaiah 61. We're going to look at it phrase by phrase. Uh, This is uh, verses 18 and 19 of Luke 4. Let's go phrase by phrase. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. See, you and I hear the word poor, and we'd be tempted to think that the gospel is only for people in a certain wage bracket. Yeah, is that what Jesus is talking about? Some kind of financial stipulation? No, but... The word poor has less of a financial overtone, although there is a little bit of that, but it speaks more to how receptive someone's heart posture is towards the gospel. You see, when someone is poor financially, it does have a tendency at some level to reorient the disposition of their heart. They recognize their helplessness financially, and so spiritually they're perhaps more likely to look to the gospel. That's why Jesus can say things like, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. He's talking about people's reception to the gospel. It's not a financial statement. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Again, we hear captive and we think movies like 12 Years a Slave or Django Unchained. We think about someone being bound up in chains, right? But when you consider the original Greek, Luke's use of the word captive speaks to the reality that we're all held captive ultimately by our sin. That's the kind of captivity that Jesus is referring to here. Recovering the sight of the blind. Now, indeed, Jesus miraculously healed people of their blindness and other infirmities all the time. But Luke is far more interested in highlighting that we're all spiritually blind and in need of recovering our spiritual sight. That's why Jesus could say things like, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Jesus used this kind of blindness language to describe spiritual realities all the time 
Next phrase, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Oh, it's, it's true. Jesus brought freedom to those who are oppressed in Acts 10.38, which I believe is Barry Palmer's favorite verse. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Absolutely, Jesus brought uh, freedom to the oppressed, but we need to know that this kind of language of oppression is used throughout the New Testament to describe not healing, but forgiveness of sins. You read that in places like Acts 26. And then finally, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Again, not a reference to a specific calendar year, especially not 2020, but to declare the beginning of a new age of salvation. That's what Jesus is talking about there. Phil Riken, he summed it up this way. He said, what do poor people need? Well, maybe they need more money. And if they do, we need to provide for their basic needs. But the main thing poor people need is the gospel, which offers them all the treasures of heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. What do prisoners need? They may want to get out of prison, but what they need most is freedom from sin, which comes only through Christ and his cross. What do people with disabilities need? Often they need practical assistance, which we're all called to help provide. But above all, they need the hope that their sins are forgiven and that one day Jesus will raise their bodies from the dead. And what do people need when they are oppressed and abused? They need comfort and protection, which we should offer, but also the safety and security of eternal life. You see, Jesus' sermon could be summed up like this. We're all held captive and in bondage to our sin. In fact, we're enslaved to it, the Bible says. But then Jesus, he flips it, he says, but... I'm announcing good news today. The Spirit has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And for all who are ready to hear it, I have been sent by my Father to provide a way of salvation so that your sins can be forgiven. You no longer have to live in bondage. Your sins can be forgiven. Now, I don't know about you, but these gracious words do sound pretty good. I can see why they were amazed by grace in that sense. This is why Jesus can say that today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing because the coming of the Messiah is not bound up with some kind of socio-political agenda. It's bound up with an agenda of proclamation. Jesus has news to declare. It's the good news of the gospel that Jesus came to proclaim. Jesus is our prophet. But there's something else that may have caught their attention on this particular day in the synagogue. We can't be too sure, but commentators do note that perhaps this was part of their hesitation with what Jesus said. If you look a little bit closer at the scripture he quoted in its original context in Isaiah 61, we're actually going to notice a discrepancy. It looks like Jesus left something out. Let's take a closer look. We're going to compare Isaiah 61 with Luke 4. I'll read Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Yep, Jesus said that bit. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Yep, tick. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Got that. Mm -hmm. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Gotcha. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Yep. And one final note here. And the day of the vengeance of our God. Ooh. He missed that bit, didn't he? Jesus didn't quote the last line. Is Jesus doing some kind of exegetical origami, trying to escape the hard bit of the text? Maybe that's what put them off. Did Jesus forget something? That seems like a pretty significant omission. The Jews may have thought so. But do you remember our friend John the Baptist locked up in prison? John the Baptist started his ministry saying things like this, The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
John the Baptist is not only in prison, but he's preached sermons about axes coming down on trees and he's not seeing a whole lot of axing going on. He's a little bit confused sitting there in prison. He's looking for Jesus to fulfill the day of vengeance of our God. But it didn't come. Why? Well, Jesus knew something that John didn't. You see, the day of vengeance will come with Jesus' second coming, but his first coming is bound up with salvation. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's John three seventeen. This is the prophetic message of hope and salvation that we can celebrate at Christmas time. Not only did Jesus arrive in a manger, but he would go to the cross to die for our sins. And it's in his second coming that the vengeance of the Lord will come. But inherent in this good news of salvation is the bad news of our depravity. You see, the message of Christmas is not that we are bold, brilliant and beautiful, but that we are blind, bound and broken. Merry Christmas. But this is what Jesus is saying. You might say, Jaden, I, I thought you said the Jews in the synagogue were amazed at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth, and now you're dropping that kind of bomb? Like, what, what do you do with that? Well, yes, but grace is only grace when it's an undeserved remedy to our problem of sin. Outside that, it's not grace. Timothy Keller, uh, from the book that Nathan quoted, actually, said these words. He says, both secular and church celebrations of Christmas focus almost entirely on the sweetness and light. They are all about the coming of Christ, <clears throat> pardon me, of how the coming of Christ means peace on earth. And it certainly does. But it's not that simple. How does a surgeon bring peace to your body if it has a tumor in it? The surgeon spills your blood and cuts you open because that is your only path to health. The surgeon often has to make you feel worse before you can feel better. It was uh, Alice's birthday on Friday and uh, we had a fun time down on the Gold Coast over the weekend and um, my brother called me on the morning of her birthday and basically said, are you awake and you haven't forgotten? Just uh, doing a good brotherly thing, checking in, make sure I didn't forget my wife's birthday. Thanks, mate. But we got chatting and I, I told him that when I got back on Sunday, I was going to be preaching. And he said, oh, cool. What, what text are you preaching for on Sunday? I said, oh, you know, Luke chapter 4 where he opens the scroll from Isaiah. And my brother said something profound. He, he just went, mm, Jesus has a voice. That's what he said in response to the fact that I was preaching from Luke 4. And that's exactly right. That is exactly what Luke 4 is all about. Jesus indeed does have a voice, and like the prophets of old, he has something to say, and he needs to let us know of our sickness before we're ready to receive the medicine that is the gospel. This is what Jesus meant in Luke chapter 5. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Why doesn't the band come and join me? Project Church, this morning, do you know that you're sick? That spiritually speaking, you and I are sitting in the emergency room in desperate need of our saviour, the great physician, Jesus. You see, tragically, the people in the synagogue didn't see themselves this way. Look what happens next. They reject him. Is this not Joseph's son? You see, they reduced him from the status of God's anointed prophet to just the local chippy. They wanted nothing to do with him. How could this local guy claim to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 61? And they rejected him. 
And Jesus is swift to respond, and he quotes a well-known proverb of that day and basically says, listen, you and your fathers before you have a long track record of rejecting prophets. And you're doing it again today. And he delivers them a message that really infuriates them. He says, hey, listen, not only has this happened before, but when it does, God's word still goes forward. And it visits people like Gentile widows and lepers, people that the Jews in the synagogue despised. Salvation will still come to those people, those who are poor enough in spirit to receive it. And they were so enraged, they sought to throw him off a cliff. I don't know how Jesus evaded them on that particular day. He must have great agility. I, I don't know what it was. He said, it says, passing through their midst, he got away from them. But the question for us today is simple. Like, will you receive or reject the message of God's anointed prophet at Christmas time? Will you receive it or just push it off a cliff? Will you allow Jesus to speak plainly to you? Will, Will you allow him to diagnose your depravity so that you can respond to his grace in repentance? And it doesn't matter how long we've been in church for. These people, these Jews had sat in the synagogue probably for years, had read the scriptures many times, but they had missed that simple and sweet message of grace found in the gospel, that you and I failed to live up to God's standards, but Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, died a death that we deserved, and rose again, that we might live for eternity with him in heaven.